I met a guy in uh, Indianapolis last week when I was on the road. Uh, he came up to me after the show and he said he uh, his he had gotten married and then his ex wife, like I, I th- I'm not sure if it was before or after, but it turned out she was raised got in the Gothard thing too, and he wasn't. Okay. And they were married for a couple of years, and I think they're now divorced. Um, and he was just kind of we were talking about an experience, and I asked him, I was like, well, what would advice from for for a woman who was raised, that, what advice would you give to men that might want to date me? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, don't. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, and welcome to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 53. Really excited to be back with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before I tell you more about my conversation this week, I want to let you know that I'm going to be in San Diego in a couple of weeks for the Sunday Assembly International Conference on the weekend of May 19 and 20. I'm going to be speaking there uh, for one of the sessions And you can learn more about the Sunday Assembly uh, International Conference as well as Sunday Assembly in general at sundayassembly.com. The theme of the conference this year is wonder, Uh, that sense of awe that we sometimes experience when we have a moment of deep connection with others or experience the beauty of the natural world. My talk is entitled Taking Wonder to the Streets, How Poverty Kills Wonder and What We Can Do. Uh, and I hope I get to see a few of you there, and perhaps there will be a recording, I hope, I suspect, there will be a recording of mine and other talks uh, that happen there in a few weeks, so stay tuned for that. My guest on the program this week is Brooke Arnold. Uh, she is a comedian uh, living in New York City, currently touring around the country with Kurt Metzger, doing a stand-up show called You're Making It Worse. Several years ago now, Brooke escaped from the Quiverful movement. Perhaps you've heard of it, a loosely organized fundamentalist Christian sect, some would say cult, that sees children as a blessing from God and as such promotes mandatory procreation for families and the rejection of all forms of birth control. As you will hear Brooke describe it in this episode, the theology behind this sect is steeped in patriarchy, misogyny, and abuse. Almost two years ago, the public suddenly became aware of the Quiverful movement and its theology in a much deeper way when it came to light that Josh Duggar, the oldest of the Duggar's 19 children, had molested several underage girls, including two of his sisters. Brooke felt drawn into the conversation at that time. She had never shared her story publicly or even privately with more than two or three people. The TLC network had featured the Duggar family on the reality TV show 19 Kids and Counting. It ran for 10 seasons before being canceled in the wake of the news of uh, Josh Duggar and the molestations. As you might expect, the show was originally known as 17 Kids and Counting, and then 18 Kids and Counting. You get the idea. 
I spoke to Brooke over Skype from the road, so while the audio quality isn't the best, Brooke's harrowing story of being ensnared in this cult as a child when her parents stumbled into it is devastating but also inspiring. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Brooke, welcome to the program. Hi, Brian. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I'm excited. Uh, right here at the outset, uh, why don't we, I, I just want to f- have you tell folks a little bit of who you are and why we're talking. So you were raised um, in the Bill Gothard uh, Quiverful right. movement, right? Right. Bill Gothard, uh, he started this sect, uh, Advanced Training Institute slash Institute of Basic Life Principles, and they have like a homeschool organization and um it's it's not affiliated with any kind of like specific organized church, uh, but throughout the South, there's a lot of churches that are considered Gothard churches, where the entire church like follows those teachings. And so I was raised in one of those where everybody at the church uh, practiced quiverful, practiced Christian patriarchy, um, you know, and it was uh, of kind of a very strict, very kind of terrifying environment. Well, it's interesting because I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, but my grandparents that I lived with during my high school years had the so many of the Bill Gothard books and had gone to his seminars. Yeah, you know, the ones that the character lessons using animals, the big... Oh, no. What are you talking about? I've never heard of those before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was like, that's a huge part of the, of the Gothard system. The, like, the character, they're called, they're called character sketches. Yes, character and, sketches. That's right. Yeah, and it have animals, and it would have, like, a positive character quality, quality, like, joy. And then the, the opposing uh, character quality, which might be depression, or I think it was negativity, actually. Um, I remember that so specifically, because my mom would go through the character sketch chart and make lists of the character qualities that I needed to work on. And so it was like, you're too negative, please try to practice joy. And I'm like, I'm negative because I'm growing up in a crazy cult, and I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> It has this very kind of like, no, it's not that much of a subtext, but it is somewhat of a subtext of like, uh, kind of like judgment and you're bad. You're not, you're not, you're not, you know, exhibiting these characteristics that a good Christian exhibits, you know, and it was very, very laid out, you know, these are the behaviors of a good person and these are the behaviors of a bad person. And if you're not doing these good things, then you're probably going to hell, you know? Wow. Yeah. And how did you, I mean, were your parents, um, like just part of this church from the beginning and and you just kind of grew up in it or did they somehow get like swept up as so many people do when it comes to cults somehow? Yeah, they got swept up. So uh, the first uh, seven years or so of my life were, you know, fairly normal for by, you know, kind of like lower middle class, you know, Texas standards, went to public school, you know, had friends, I watched TV, things like that. And then kind of like one day my parents are like, we got saved. And, you know, suddenly I was kind of forced to like clean out my room, throw away all my toys. I was no longer allowed to speak to my friends or or even my cousins or extended family. And, uh, you know, was no longer allowed to go to school. And it was this kind of odd, it was, it was a really odd thing because that was such a vulnerable age at which that to happen to you. I think if I'd been a little bit older, it would have been less traumatic 
And I think if I'd been a little bit younger, it probably wouldn't have, uh, I might have not have escaped it quite so easily. Uh, but this is the perfect age where you're seven and you still believe in the supernatural and you still are completely trusting of the people who are in authority over you. And so, like, I really bought into it hook, line, and sinker for a really long time because, you know, I was just so, I was too, I was young enough to know that things had changed and to be very, con- or old enough to know things had changed and be very confused by them, but still young enough that the, the change in our belief system didn't drastically impact the way that I see the world. Right, right. So you, it just became your normal at that age. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, you know, and I, I really struggled for a long time because I, I really, I was a true believer, you know, and I've had a conversation with a friend of mine where we, we say that if you're ever a true believer, you have to leave because true believers can't stay within the church. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Um, and so I was a true believer, but there was also always this, like, this terror of not being saved. So my, my parents were Calvinists, which means that you don't, God decided before the beginning of time who would be saved and who wouldn't be saved. Um, And you're either one of the elect, which means you're going to be saved, or you're not. And you have no control over this. And I remember, you know, devoting myself to the Bible and devoting myself to God and just really trying to, like, feel some kind of connection to Him or uh, some kind of feel that this was real. And I never really did deep down in my soul. And I was convinced for years that that was because I was not one of the elect, that I was not saved. And, you know, I tried so hard to prove to myself and to feel things, uh, to, to believe that I was going to be saved. But, and there was this, this kind of part of me deep down inside that felt I never would be. Mm. God, it's torture. Yeah. I mean, it's just like literally like mental uh, and psychological torture. Yeah, it is. You know, in a way, it's kind of like being um, in solitary confinement in some ways. You know, you're Mm. completely isolated from the world. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to have friends or go to school or, you know, do, uh, you know, do any kind of activities or whatnot. So it's basically, you know, spent my entire, entire childhood, you know, alone in the house with my mom and my brother. And, you know, eventually, you know, the more time that you spend alone, the more that your boundaries of identity begin to collapse. And you come to kind of doubt that you even exist huh. because you don't have these, you know, these boundaries of the other to bump against, you know. Yeah. Wow, that's profound. Even now, I doubt my own reality. I doubt my own perceptions. I doubt my own uh, existence, you know, because I, you know, I had all of that kind of like taken away from me at the time when you were developing that sense of self. Right. Well, I want to come back to that because that's a, a really, I mean, a really interesting statement um, and kind of just see how that, you know, ask you a little bit about how that plays out. But before we do that, like you, you mentioned not going to school, which reminded me that one of the big cornerstones <laughs> of Gothard and all of that is the homeschool movement, right? So you were yeah. homeschooled? I was um, from, uh, I guess, what would have been like uh, third grade to the end of homeschool, you know, and everyone, every single family in our church, with the exception of one, homeschooled their children. And everyone judged the one family that didn't homeschool their children like crazy. And like the, the little girl, the girls that were part of that family were kind of like social pariahs because everybody saw them as being like uh, a potential threat. Oh, wow. Which is, uh, it's, 
<laughs> which is like an isolation of their own. Like, you know, so they were slightly maybe more, we might say, normal than you guys because they went to public school or whatever or maybe another Christian school. But then they were also isolated in a sense because they were being singled out by the church as weird for being normal. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was homeschooled from, uh, for most of my childhood. And um, it's a funny thing, you know, I'm still like learning things. Like I just learned the, like a couple weeks ago that like there's actually a fossil record. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So did you go to school then after all of that? Like after high school? Like I assume that your homeschool went up through high school or something? Well, I mean, Yes and no. I mean, my parents were very, like, my mom was very lackadaisical about it. You know, she'd get into, like, a mood, and we'd go really hard and do homeschool, like, really intensely for a couple of months, and then she'd get bored of it and just kind of, like, let my brother and I sit in our rooms alone all day. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. Yeah, the schooling, like, the, the schooling was very erratic, and that wasn't unusual in our church. There were a lot of um, a lot of kids who, you know, were illiterate. There were a lot of kids who, like, didn't know basic things like how to read a clock or how to, uh, uh, you know, do much. I remember in Sunday school, the girls' Sunday school class, we'd go around the room, uh, each taking a turn reading a Bible verse. Um, and none of the girls in the room were capable of reading the verses hardly at all because they were all pretty much functionally illiterate. Wow. Uh, and I remember just judging them so hard and being, God, oh, these stupid girls, I'm so much smarter than them. And now I think back on it and I just want to weep for all of them. You know? Was that because they were girls or were there also boys who were in that situation? I'm assuming that there's also there were also boys. We were so segregated gender wise that it's it's hard for me to comment on that. Wow. But uh I, I do know that because what ends up happening in these kinds of these quiverful situations is you've got more children than any single mother can or any not a single mother, but a mother can take care of. And so usually once the daughters hit, you know, puberty or even 10 years old, they become primary caregivers for the younger children. And so usually their schooling falls on the wayside because mm. They're helping their mother with childcare, with housekeeping, with grocery shopping, with all of those things. And they're basically, they become surrogate mothers to the younger children because their mothers are just, they can't handle it. It's like Little House on the Prairie. Right. It's like yeah, subsistence yeah. economy, but in the city. Yeah. It had a very, well, it had a very 19th century vibe and there was that kind of like, Undercurrent, there's like a there's like a kind of sub movement within the larger kind of Christian patriarchy movement or quiverful movement of kind of like homesteading, where like you go and you live in the woods and you live off the land. And my parents like were obsessed with that and like were always planning us for us to start doing it, but we never actually went in into the woods to turn butter, which I guess. Wow. It's one thing I could be grateful for. <laughs> I was going to say small mercies, yeah. <laughs> My parents were too disorganized to start homesteading. <laughs> Thanks, God. <laughs> they would have literally starved to death. It's like, uh, <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no food. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So yeah. let, me, let me just go back and try to establish the timelines because I'm so curious how people – because I've met, I, you know, I've obviously met people um, who have been a part of this movement before. In fact, I know uh, a woman um, from my sort of time speaking on the sort of atheist humanist circuit. Um, mm -hmm. And she's a, a fairly well-known, you know, former Quiverful. She has um, a blog 
uh, about it. And every time it comes up in the news, she, you know, people turn to her as an expert about yeah, you know, what, I the same thing. Yeah. What it's like. Yeah. I want to come to that too. But how did your, you said that your folks were swept up into it. I assume, you know, mom and dad, or maybe it was just your mom. Um, what, what was going on in your guy's life that made, cause usually when people are caught in something like that, there's a, like a presenting thing, like, you know, some trauma that happens that people start reaching out for something solid or or confident? I mean, that's a good question that I don't know that I 100% have the answer to because um, I was so young, you know, I think there was some substance abuse, some alcoholism. I think that there was, you know, a sense of, I think there was some mental illness. Uh, um, I think that there was... um, uh, kind of a, a dissatisfaction with this kind of like we were really really poor like really like we were like the mm. only green thing that I ever ate growing up was like the mold on the yogurt that we got at the food bank you oh, know wow. <laughs> yeah. you know that kind of we were like that kind of poor like sleeping on the floor kind of poor like uh, like having to like our plumbing didn't work so we'd have to go in the yard and fill up buckets kind of poor you know um, holes in the floor kind of poor you know we were that kind of poor and I think mm. you know there was some kind of comfort in having a god and having a church or having a you know having this belief that things would be better someday you know yeah for sure and I think religions of all kinds kind of provide that confidence that sense that you know there's something solid Mm-hmm. Or that you're, you know, if you're faithful, you're, you know, things will change. Um, you know, you'll get the better end of the stick at the end if you're faithful. And um, of course, right. what comes with that is, you know, you, you're never faithful enough. And you always feel like you're on the verge of, you know, not only being physically poor, but also going to hell on top of it. So it's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Ag- that's agonizing. And so yeah. then your parents really stuck with it. Are they still in it now or, or? Um, no, I, uh, they, they left, uh, after I, sometime after I did, you know, it was was like a deep bitterness of my life that like, when I was in my twenties, my parents like kind of like went through this wild stage and they started like going to Willie Nelson concerts and drinking beer and going to nude beaches. And I was like, why couldn't you've done this when it would have mattered for me? (laughs) I know the feeling. Yes. Yes. But then the pendulum swung back and they're back into the like uh, the Christian thing. But I think that their religion is more Fox News and hating Obama than it is worshiping Jesus. Wow. Are you in touch with them much? Not really. No, I, I it's, it's it's a deeply sad thing. But I unfortunately have had to cut out contact um, because, you know, in addition to the uh in addition to the the religious stuff, which of course is innately abusive, there was also like more overt abuse in my home, and I, and in order to heal, I just had to make the decision that at least for now, I need to, I can't have those wounds reopened by them. I guess absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's so hard. Yeah, that is a difficult thing to have to decide, but it makes so much sense, and I know, yeah, um, yeah that's that's got to be tough. It took me years, you know, people kept my therapist, my friends, my partner were for years, you know, telling me that it was something that they they saw thought was really necessary for me and I just like couldn't do it. I didn't have the I didn't have the guts to do it and then finally, you know, things reached the point where I, you know, I healed enough that I could see the abuse in such a such a more real way, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and so I was able to take that step. And I'm not saying that it's a forever step, but I do know that it's necessary now. Yeah, I think that's encouraging to people who may be listening who are, you know, and one of the reasons I do this podcast, um, especially the X-Files segment is, you know, for exactly that reason, you know, people hear a story that obviously everyone's story is unique, but there are some touchstones, you know, where people, you know, find a commonality in someone else's story and they draw a little strength from that to do what they feel like, you know, what they suspect they need to do, but just haven't done yet or or whatever. And certainly not a prescription for anybody, but, Hmm. but you know, that sometimes that is a choice that people unfortunately have to make in order to really break free. And as you say, find healing. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I, um, I never intended to become a public figure around this topic. That was, (laughs) <laughs> pretty much the last thing that I ever wanted, you know, and I, um, and back in 2015, before I, I guess, came out of the closet or went public, whatever you want to call it, I, there were probably three people in my personal life who even knew about it because I had lied to about, people about, about your personal about, life at home. Right. I had just like, I told them I lied and said, I'd gone to high school. I lied and said, you know, you know, I just, I didn't tell anybody about having grown up in the Gothard thing because I was really ashamed of it. Right. You know, I, and my kind of driving desire was, I want to be normal. I want to be like a normal person. I want to be a normal girl and a normal, you know, I, want, I don't want anybody to think I'm weird, you know, like this deep shame around it. Um, and, uh, and I guess when the, when the Duggar scandal, the Josh Duggar scandal happened a couple years ago, I guess in 2015, May of 2015, yeah. I was really horrified by the way that the, the media, uh, was covering it because I felt like there was this kind of schadenfreude and this kind yeah. of, uh, you know, like, ha ha, we caught you, you're a hypocrite. And it really, it really infuriated me because the thing is, Josh Duggar molesting his sister is not hypocritical. It's the most natural and expected uh, result of this incredibly uh, sick, uh, sexist uh, theology that they're teaching. Um, Gothardism is rape culture. It is, it is basically a rape cult. You are taking young girls and you're telling them that they're not allowed to be educated that God is going to choose their husband, that they can never disobey that their husband, that they have no right to sexual consent. They must have sex with their husband anytime he wants to have sex with them, that they have no reproductive control. They must give birth every time they get pregnant. And any desire to have anything else is a demon uh, telling them that. Wow. Uh, so it's absolutely, it's, it's you know, at, at its core, it, it is a rape cult. And um, so how does I, I mean, I think I see it, but can you connect the dots for us really quick? Like how that that you described the patriarchy that you described that women are basically sex slaves to their husbands. How does yeah. how does that lead to uh, Josh Duggar molesting his sister? Of course. Um, well, I mean, he's taught that women are uh, sex, sex slaves, sex objects that they have no point purpose other than that. So you can just That's do whatever you want with them. In, in, a, in a sense, I mean, in the context of marriage is the teaching, but if you've fundamentally devalued women to that level, then then consent kind of becomes ambiguous in all situations. Right, 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 right. And, uh, so there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is just the, the practical aspect of it, right? And like the, if you take a, 
if you take a teenage boy and you tell him he can't date, he can't masturbate, he can't watch pornography, he's evil for having sexual thoughts, and then you don't allow him to have any interaction with girl with young girls, uh, and keep him inside of a house all day with sisters. It's pretty much. <laughs> yeah, it's a powder <laughs> keg. Like for, yeah, it's a powder keg. You know, for I, I hate to fall on this term, but uh, it's a joke I have in my show. You know, you're asking for it at that <laughs> point. You know, yeah, you just, we are. And it was endemic within my church. I was pretty much me and maybe one other girl that I'm aware of. Pretty much the only ones that weren't being molested by a father or uh, a brother. Um, it was so common. It was really. It was happening to everybody. We didn't. Holy shit! There was a kind of a deliberate, deliberate decision on the church's part to not really educate us about sex because there was this belief that women don't have sex drive, so we don't have to even bother to tell them it's a sin. Wow. <laughs> um, so they're doing these things to you, and you don't really understand um, what they are because no one's ever told you. You don't have a counselor that you know at school that you can go to. You don't have a teacher who's going to notice that your behavior has changed. And you have parents who are um, valuing your brother more than you, so are always going to believe him over you. And you also have parents who have an eternal investment in not acknowledging um, that this abuse might be the uh, natural product of a really, you know, skewed, horrible theology that we're all living in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're totally isolated. Right. What a trap. Yeah. So were you, so you had in your own, like, life and practice and thinking left that movement before the the Duggar uh, thing hit the media, right? But you had a been... really long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I left when I'm I'm a blank blank old now. <laughs> so at least a decade. I, I, I around a decade. I left when I was uh, 17. OK, but you just never told anybody about your past. You just kind of like made a clean cut and then just kind of almost yeah. got like, a you know, immunity and just <laughs> started a new life. Yeah, you know, I remember there's a, a like you know kind of like, but it has like a bit of a drink. It has a bit of a drink minimum or maximum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, I get a couple of glasses of wine to me, and all that. I like you know, you know, college. I was a college party, and I was just like randomly was like got a little too drunk, and was like, I grew up in a cult, and <laughs> everybody around me like had known me for years. I like two of the people I lived with. Oh, <laughs> like over a year, and they had no idea because I just. They're like, wait, what? They're like, Brooke. (laughs) Set the glass down. Let's have a talk. You know, I just felt, like I said, I felt so much shame around it. And I I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be normal. And so I wrote this article for Salon making the same argument, similar argument to what I just made now about my experience of growing up in this and how evil it was and how, you know, damaging it was. And uh, I didn't think much of it, to be honest with you, because, you know, it was on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the internet is a never ending uh, ocean of uh, useless stuff, you know, and so I thought, okay, here's my little pebble into the ocean. Uh, And instead, it was like the neck by the next day, it was like viral, it had like over 100,000 Facebook shares. And I was at 30 Rock uh, on Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. And I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) 
And I, you know, I, I, it was so weird for me because I kind of instantly became nationally known for something that I was too ashamed to tell my closest friends. And that was, you know, that's been difficult for me because I, there's a deep, a deep sense of, uh, I guess, hesitation. Like, I don't want to be known for this. I don't want this to be a defining characteristic. Uh, but it's turned out that, but it's kind of the work that I have to do in a way. Um, you know, it's like the, I guess, you know, someone like Buffy doesn't want to be the slayer, but she, she does it because it's her calling, you know, and I, I feel similarly, <laughs> I feel similarly about this because it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do to be this open about these kinds of things, you know, it must, yeah, it must bring up all that crap again. Every time you talk about it, I'm, I'm sorry. I have to be one more person to like regurgitate all this. No, I'm getting better. I'm getting, it's getting easier. It's getting easier. And then like every time I do it, it's, uh, it's a, it's a practice. I, I have a rule now where I have to get on every time I get on stage, I have to like do at least three minutes about it. Cause I'm trying to get really comfortable doing it in a stand up setting, which I haven't ever been able to do before, but it's, 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 it's good work that we're doing here. And it's not like I, uh, I was in, uh, I, I'm currently on a national comedy tour, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I was in, uh, well, a couple of really cool things have happened. When I was in Seattle, um, my cousin came to the show, and I had not seen her since my parents had joined the Gothard thing. I hadn't seen her since I was eight years old. Wow. And so the last time she saw me, I was this little seven-year-old girl with matted hair, <laughs> you know, getting put into the back of an orange Volkswagen van and drove, driven to Tennessee to live at a Jesus camp. <laughs> oh my. And the next time she sees me, I'm performing to like 300 people at a sold-out show, comedy, stand-up comedy show in Seattle. That's really cool, <laughs> you know? But but it was so it was so healing for me to see her because and I wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't started talking about this. But like we talked and you know she told me like we used to cry every Christmas because you and your brother weren't there. We missed you guys so much and we loved you so much and we were so sad about what was happening to you. And to have somebody who was like she was about fifteen years older than I was to have somebody who was near enough to witness what was happening but outside of it like kind of reaffirmed to me um my perception of the experience was so profound was more profoundly healing than I think anything ever has been for me because you know you're you're taught to to distrust your own thoughts and distrust your own feelings and distrust your own perceptions right because you're evil right um and so having you know, I, I still have doubts. I'm like, did I make this all up? Is this real? Did this ha-? like, I really genuinely have those. Um, and to have someone verify to me, like from the outside, yes, I saw it. It was horrible. I'm so sorry. I love you. was just, it just like, I just cried and cried and cried just tears of relief and mm. joy. You know? It's like gaslighting on the grandest scale. It is. It absolutely is. Where you yeah. really question your version of reality, not about an incident, but about your whole growing up young adult experience. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I, I wrote a, I wrote a show. I, I have a solo show, a one woman show, uh, called Growing Up Fundy, uh, that I did at the Fringe Festival last year, and I really opened up. Uh, in ways that I hadn't before about it and told things that I hadn't told before about it. 
And after the first performance, I became convinced that I was a narcissistic pathological liar and that I'd made it all up. And I had to sit there with myself and write down, you know, where are you homeschooled? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Did they teach this? Yes. You know, because, you know, this this act of kind of, you know, anytime you put on a performance or a show like that, it's not going to be 100% accurately the truth. You know, it's a, it's a symbolic representation of the experience. Sure, yeah. It's, and so even putting it into that context made me think, like, did I just make this all up? Is that, am I crazy? Like, you know, it was it was really intense. But the and I and I went through a really hard period after that It was really difficult. I started drinking too much. You know, I, uh, you know, I kind of was in a really bad place because in order to survive after I left, you know, I didn't have any survival skills. I had no social skills and I had never been around people. I'd never dated anybody. I didn't know what sex was. I never had a job or an education. I had no high school diploma to get to go to college, you know, like I was completely unprepared for the world. Mm. Um, and so I kind of just spent the, you know, a long time being this like little, you know, like stray dog kind of wandering around like, will you love me? Will you love me? Will you love me? Oh. <laughs> yeah, but, but then I kind of developed this kind of like um, a friend of mine calls that calls it Brooks Shields. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Isn't that great? And it's like this kind of like sedimented rock of like defense mechanisms because like I was really, you know, I went from homeschool to homeless, you know. <laughs> wow. I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have any way to support myself. I, I lived really on the edges of, of the world of, you know, society for a really, really long time. And I, uh, you know, you have to get really tough to survive that in a way. And I did. Uh, but more and more, I realized that like that that attitude, you know, kind of doesn't serve me. Now it's just like a bad habit that prevents me from actually being happy or actually having the things that I left in order to have, you know? Yeah. You sort of self-sabotage, you know, your, yourself as you get better at having good relationships, those habits probably still linger. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you find another one and you're like, oh, there's another one. <laughs> and then you, got of this, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. But it's, you know, and so it's like I had to kind of re-traumatize myself, I guess, in order to start talking about this in a, in a, in a, in a, in a public way, in an open way. Then it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been difficult. It hasn't been, you know, easy, but then there's moments that make it really beautiful. I was in I was in Pittsburgh and a guy came up to me and a uh, young guy, like, you know, 18 to 22. And he came up and he said, are you Brooke Arnold? And I said, yeah. And he's like, I came to see you. Can I give you a hug? And I said, sure. And he gave me this hug and he's like, just starts tearing up and he gives me this dozen roses. <laughs> and he says that he heard me on uh, the Race Wars podcast, tell my story and that it inspired him to go to his parents and tell them for the first time that he'd been molested by a pastor as a child. Wow. And that now he was getting therapy and help because he heard me talk about it, and he was like, you saved my life. And, like, you know, like, that makes it all worth it. It's like, okay, every night that I stayed at a bar till 4 a.m. till the lights came on trying to, like, walk, trying to, like, drink away this pain of, having to be public about this and re-traumatizing myself like that moment that one instant like it, it all you know it seemed worth it but then it makes it easier for me to do it now like he's he thinks I'm the one who's given him a gift but he's actually the one who's given me a gift yeah isn't that how it goes yeah <laughs> wow. yeah what how, I'm, I'm thinking that 
and I, I know just enough to kind of have a, a, a sort of an intimation of this, but it seems that comedy might have a very particular, um, what am I trying to say? Like that, that comedy is a very particular way of um, coming at these issues, uh-huh. um, you know, because to me it's like, you can come at them head on, of course, and talk about them very directly, sort of like we are, even though we're, you know, mixing in some humor, which is great. Um, but to come at them sort of from sideways, you know, with, with humor, um, how does, what role, I guess, it does comedy play in you working through these things? Did you just sort of happen into it? Or was it just like temperamentally that was your way of sort of beginning to peel back the layers of all the bullshit that you'd been subjected to? I think maybe a combination of both. You know, I, um, as I mentioned before, like I ended up in this situation where I was, you know, pretty much homeless, you know, and I, for years, just kind of couch surfed. Yeah. Uh, when you're a 17 year old girl, uh, who is homeless, you have two pieces of currency. Huh. Uh, the primary one is your body, right? Yeah. Uh, you can, you can, uh, have sex with guys or flirt with guys in order to have a place to stay. Um, and I didn't want to do that cause, uh, it just, it didn't work. I, you know, I, I, I did it for a bit and it just didn't work out so well. <laughs> Surprise, I can't surprise. imagine. <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? You know, crazy that the guys at the trailer park are just not gentlemen, you know. Hmm. That's the other thing, too. Like, when you, you have a second grade education, no high school diploma, like, what kind of people are you hanging out with? You know, you're not hanging out with, like, <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, it's just like I, I went from, like, the, you know, and so I realized very early on if I got funny, uh, that people would let me come and stay at their place for as long as they, as long as I wanted because I was so much fun to be around. Oh, yeah. So I actually started, my survival for years was from doing comedy in like people's living rooms, basically. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's like I got fat and I got funny and I was protected <laughs> from, you know, uh, the kinds of things that happen to uh, homeless girls in, in, in large part. Uh uh, so basically, you know, I, I've been supporting myself through comedy since I was 18 years old, you know, mm. it just was in a kind of a different form. Yeah. More of a personal kind of one-on-one thing. And then it became more of a profession. Right. And then you kind of get used to it. And I never thought in a million years I would do this in a million years. I mean, like I wasn't even ever supposed to have a job. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone in a bar or in some seedy place. Right, or just, like, like, do you know, like, I had to overcome so much, like, training about pride and vanity in order just to get on stage the first time. Mm, Wow. That's not what usually what people are dealing with. Usually it's, like, stage fright, you know, insecurity, but, like, you're like, am I being proud? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I still feel that. Like, when people come up and say nice things to me, I just, like, I can't deal with it. Like, because we were raised, like, if someone says, like, Oh, Brooke, you look nice today. Your your immediate reaction is always supposed to be like, well, praise be to Jesus. Like you have to like defer right. any kind of compliment to God. And so it's like, wow, like how vain are you, how prideful are you getting on a stage and thinking everybody wants to listen to what you have to say and they should clap and laugh, you know, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had to really work hard to like overcome this, like kind of feeling that it was selfish or vain or, or proud 
to do that. Um, but I just needed to do it in a way I can't, in a way I can't really, uh, describe. I just, I just needed to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, it's, I think it's a very, you know, it, it evolved just so organically for you from something that was a survival technique, uh, to something that's, I think now obviously has helped you, but is also now helping so many other people that listen to you. I find the same thing in a very, very different way with the podcast and with the speaking engagements that I've done. Just being vulnerable about your own situation opens up a space for other people to say, Hey, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had an experience that I haven't been able to talk about. Um, and it's, it is a gift to people to just open that space for people to to acknowledge Mm -hmm. what's happened to them. Yeah. Um, to break the silence about it. Absolutely, you know, and I think that I think that one of the things that I one of the things that I feel is that I'm, you know, probably you know, I, I a couple years ago, well, after the salon thing, I got offered a development deal with a production company, and they're the creators of the show uh, MTV True Life. Oh yeah, True Life on MTV, right? And I remember, like, one of my first meetings with them, they told me that the hardest episode that they ever cast was the homeschool episode. (laughs) Uh. Because it was so difficult to find somebody who'd been through that experience who was kind of articulate and educated and engaging and capable enough of even speaking about it. Yeah. Um, And so, in a way, you know, there's so many people who've had basically their ability to communicate and their ability to connect with people and their ability to uh, uh, reflect on their experiences or articulate their experiences. They've had those abilities taken away. And I got lucky or uh, I got lucky and I, and I didn't. You know? right. And so in some ways I feel like it's necessary for me specifically too to speak about this because I feel like there's so few people who can. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, when you're not speaking about the thing that you hate to speak about, <laughs> what else? I'm making, I'm making peace with it. I'm making peace with it. <laughs> yeah, you're doing great. You're doing fantastic, and I appreciate it. Uh, what What else do you? What else makes your life tick? What do you What do you like to do? I mean, obviously, you're a comedian. You're traveling right now. Your uh, part of your show is about this experience, but obviously, it's not all about that. Um, what, yeah. What else do you like? What else do you do? Um, well, right now, I guess when I'm not, um, doing this, which is pretty much all I'm doing, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, very conscious, very real healing right now. Yeah. Uh, and so that takes up a lot of my time and, you know, I'm trying to kind of navigate what are the best means to, uh, to, to heal myself. I have, I have complex PTSD, of course. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Surprise. How could you not? Uh, yeah. Right, right. And that that's very difficult. That's a very difficult thing to live with because it's this, it's an actual, you know, like, it's like if you're, you know, you're in an abusive marriage and your husband breaks your leg and you always limp, you know, PTSD is a physical injury to your brain that hmm. uh, is, you know, it's a remnant of that. I carry it around with me everywhere I go. And, you know, it's so... It's a, it's a difficult thing to deal with. It's frustrating to feel like that you, you've made all this effort to, to, to change and to grow and to heal and to, to, to become better. But there's an actual physical impairment on your body that 
actively prevents it at all different moments, you know? Yeah. It's just yeah. constantly dogging your steps. Like right. Right. When you right, think right. Yeah. You made this huge progress and then it's there like, God. yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, like, you know, this like little things, you know, like you, you, you like my company, like kind of do one of those escape room things where like, it's like team building. We go in like lock ourselves in the room and get out. And I'm like, I'm not getting locked in anywhere. Are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not fun. Not funny. <laughs> but then you seem like they don't really, and people, a lot of people don't really understand like how severe the trauma of these kinds of experiences are. And so they judge you for that, especially if you're a woman, it's like, Oh, well she's crazy or fragile. <laughs> or... or fragile. It's not that like I'm in, insanely strong and have been through an insane amount of stuff. Right. Uh, it's that, you know, that's, that's some kind of weakness. Um, so there's that, so this is the healing process and it's interesting to hear what you think about this. Uh, I have a, I'm kind of at a crossroads whether I'm trying to decide whether to, uh, go into therapy or not. Okay. Uh, I was some years ago and I haven't been doing it. And one of my really very real fears about it is that it's like a, the, one of the things about being religious or, or relying on God is that you're always looking outside yourself for the answers. Right. You're always outside yourself for everything. And I worry that if I, that because I'm so trained, brainwashed to do, was so brainwashed to do that, that if I see a therapist, that I'll just kind of like put them in God's place and I won't, I won't be able to like, it won't kind of go to the growing of myself and it'll just like, kind of transferring that codependence onto a, onto a therapist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, hear what your thoughts are about that. Well, if a therapist started to take that role in your life, you should run. I mean, I, I don't think any therapist that's worth anything in their occupation would tell you what to do or, I mean, to me, that's the kiss of death. You know, if a therapist starts telling you what to do, um, like I had an amazing therapist for a long time that I just, my time and money doesn't, uh, allow for it right now but um mm -hmm. you know and i would sometimes want her to give me some advice and she wouldn't you know what i mean like that was not her job um mm -hmm. and it really was to me good therapy is like someone holding a mirror up to you and you see things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise um mm -hmm. you know and and it's it's sort of like there are certain kinds of situations that you can't get out of by yourself it's it's sort of the old um you know, there are things you know that you don't know, but how do you tackle the things that you don't know that you don't know? Yeah, like, I have no idea. <laughs> like you don't even know that you don't know them. So what are you supposed? I know. To, what are you supposed to do? So to me, you know, um, you know, my therapist would say things to me like, "Have you noticed that as we've been talking, this has been the theme of what you're saying, and it corresponds to what you said last week about blah blah blah," and and you're all suddenly you're like, "Oh my gosh." Yeah, that's a thing. I need to think a little differently about that or mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's just it's a way of for someone to reflect you back to you. Um a good therapist. Now, I mean there's a bunch right. of hacks out there. Um and you know, the whole idea of Christian therapy obviously you wouldn't go for that anyway, but uh <laughs> but that whole thing is really about helping you kind of conform to an ideal which is outside of you and all of that, like mm -hmm. you like you were saying. But mm -hmm. I think any good therapy would be uh, has to be focused on you becoming the best you, right? You know, and tossing the question back to you. So if you say like, "What should I do about this relationship I'm in?" You know, <laughs> in so many words, like the therapist should say, "Well, what do you want to do?" Like, mm -hmm. 
I mean, do you, you know, how, how does it line up with your, what's most important to you? How does it line up with your values? What are your values? Mm-hmm. Are you living in, you know, in one of the things that a friend of mine who's a therapist, I mean, he's not my therapist, but we end up doing a lot of therapy ish type conversations. Right. You know, he's, he's constantly asking me to think about what, you know, what are my values? Am I living in accordance with what I value or am I doing things in my case, you know, I find myself doing things to keep other people happy uh, because that's the role I always played in my childhood and so forth. Mm So I'll, I'll do that without even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I stop and think about it, I'll say to myself, I don't even want to do this. Why am I doing it? You Mm -hmm. know, I don't have to do X, Y, Z just because it keeps these two or three people happy in my life. So that's the kind of thing for me. Like I just slip into these patterns. So I'm, I'm a fan of therapy, but yeah, like you say, it has to be the right person. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like one of the things that I'm kind of debating right now is like, where kind of where to go, you know, in where, where, what is my next step in the healing process, Mm, you know? mm -hmm. And, uh, like I said, I, uh, you know, just kind of like writing this, the one woman show and doing that just really opened up a lot of really awful things for me. And like the, it was in August, late August, and like I guess the last six months have just been really tough on me. And I'm just kind of over the last couple of weeks feeling like, okay, I'm getting it back. I, you know, like I feel like myself a little bit more again and like almost like a lighter version of myself because what I did is I just like sat there with those feelings. I just let them, I just let myself feel them. And sometimes yeah. that meant I was screaming and sometimes that meant I was crying. And sometimes that meant I couldn't get out of bed. And sometimes that meant I was getting wasted. Right. But now it's kind of like, okay, I feel like it's weird. It's like I simultaneously now like feel like my old self again, but also a much lighter version of that, like a polished, more improved version. Like I'm yeah. not quite as weighted, I'm not quite as weighted down by the pain. And, you know, the, every time I get to have a conversation like this, that helps too, you know, because it reaffirms to me that the things that I've been through and my honesty about them, um, is, is a positive thing, both for myself and for, the people who hear it, you know, for sure. Yeah. It kind of reaffirms that your version of the story is real. It's not like you're right. fooling yourself again. Well, and I had a lot of, I mean, a lot of my misgivings were, uh, you know, how hurt my parents would feel about me being so honest about this, you know? Right. Uh, that's been a really difficult, really difficult road to, to go on, you know, and I've been very, I've, I've tried my best to like not be, you know, to never say anything personally disparaging about either one of them, because I don't, my intention with this is not to hurt them. But at the same time, too, you know, uh, if, you know, Joan Didion always says, if you want people to say nice, if you don't want people to write bad things about you, you should have acted better. (laughs) 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 I kept that, I kept that on my desk for like a year as like a reminder, like, (laughs) But I, but I definitely can like, I can imagine like from their perspective how humiliating it must be to have like uh, me publishing articles about this or me doing shows about this or me talking about this sure. in like a really public way. I'm sure it's humiliating and I'm sure it's hurtful and I regret that and I hate that, but I can't not do it for those reasons either, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it is what it is and, you know we all do, you know, try to do the best we can with what we have. And maybe in some universe, your parents were doing the best they knew how to do at that moment in their lives for whatever reason. But 
yeah. it doesn't change the fact that it wasn't good enough. You know, it was, um, they, you know, sometimes people's best isn't good enough and right. you just have to face the music. Right. Well, and it's interesting, like, there's never been an apology for it. I've never been apologized. You know, like, they never mm. said, wow. not even once have they ever said, like, wait, we shouldn't have done that, you know, or we're sorry that we did that. Or we're even, you know, just we're sorry that this hurt you that much. Right. You know, they, they don't seem to have an acknowledged, they don't seem to have a, a very real, and I don't know if it's a decision they've made or an incapacity on their part, but right. I, they've never, they've never made like, they've never really acknowledged how much more traumatizing that, that experience was for a seven year old girl than it was for a adult in their thirties. Who's actively making the decision to do it. They say like, Oh, it wasn't that bad on us. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you were an adult. Right. <laughs> yes. And you know, you weren't going to be basically sold to some, you know, guy in a trailer that uses a piece of rope as a belt. Like that was, that was what you're going to do to me. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah and you know and i you know and i think that like for me that's been like a huge thing like i feel like if, if they would just sit me if they would just like have an honest conversation with me and try to you know they don't even have to say like we were wrong but just like we're sorry this hurt you or we're sorry that you felt that, that we caused you this much pain that would be a start suffering. like that would be something and that's that's i think what you know i'm talking looping back to like the conversation about you know, cutting people off or not having contact with them. Like to me, that's the first step that they have to do before I would ever consider, you know, having contact, regular contact with them again, because I can't heal unless there's at least a mutual acknowledgement that this hurt that I feel is real. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just to acknowledge your humanity. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I hope that day comes and (laughs) And it it may, you know, it's, it's very possible and, um, but it may not, you know, and that's the other side of it. And, um, you've already demonstrated that you're, you know, a strong person with a will to survive and not just survive, but thrive and, and, uh, help others along the way. And I think it's hugely inspiring. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I think, I think it is, and it's, you know, it gives you strength to know how far you've come. Oh yeah. And it gives you strength to know, like, it's funny. Like, I think, like, when I think about, like, you know, people that I know that are also like kind of trying to, you know, come, you know, not not successful yet comedians, but trying to kind of make it, you know, and you know, the distance between where they're at now and where they want to be seems so great, but like. For me, it seems so small because it's so much smaller than the distance from where I've come from. And where <laughs> I am now, it just seems like one step. <laughs> oh, you know? yeah. Uh, um, baby, but I, baby steps, huh? Yeah, baby steps. So I, met a, I met a guy in uh, Indianapolis last week when I was on the road. Uh, he came up to me after the show and he said he uh, his, he had gotten married and then his ex-wife <laughs> Like I, th- I'm not sure if it was before or after, but it turned out she was raised got in the Gothard thing too, and he wasn't. Okay. And they were married for a couple of years, and I think they're now divorced. Um, and he was just kind of we were talking about an experience, and I asked him, I was like, "Well, what would advice from for for a woman who was raised? In that, what advice would you give to men that might want to date me?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Don't." Oh no. <laughs> You're like, I hate you. Go away. I was, I was like, oh. That's I, give, I give them the same advice though, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away. Yeah. Stay away. Go away. 
Well, before we go, and I know we're, we're running out of time here, and you're, I'm sure you have other things to do today besides talk to me, but where is your tour headed next? So uh, I'm currently on the uh, uh, You're Making It Worse tour with uh, Kurt Metzger. You can look up all the dates on his cool. on his Facebook. Uh, we'll actually be in... Uh, we're going to be in the Northwest in late April. So like Victoria, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland. Um, and then we're going to be in late May. We're going to be in New Orleans, uh, Houston, Austin, Dallas, and Oklahoma. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm scared for those Texas shows, right? In the South and <laughs> Texas. Oh my gosh. It's my hometown. I'm like, what if my, what if like someone from my family or my, like if my parents, what if my parents show up? <laughs> oh gosh. I should come to that show. You should. You should. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so we'll be doing that, but we're also going to be adding some more dates, so we'll be around. And I, uh, yeah, I'm also, uh, I'm launching a podcast, my own podcast pretty soon. It's going to be me and my life coach uh, just kind of making a podcast about, like, my process of, like, relearning how to, or learning for the first time, rather, like, how to be a person. <laughs> Well, Brooke, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to go through this yet again. Um, I already anticipate, you know, the response uh, from my listeners. I just, you know, this Life After God community is such a compassionate community of people who have been through some similar things. Obviously, people are, their, you know, experiences are quite different from each other. But I just know that this is going to resonate with so many people. And I really appreciate you sharing. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And thank you for this beautiful work that you're doing. It's, it's, it's so needed and so important. What an amazing story. Thank you so much to Brooke Arnold for her courage and for taking the time to talk to us. I hope you were uh, amused, but also inspired uh, by her story and her work of recovery that she is uh, undertaking even now. I also want to say a special thanks to our mutual friend, Natalie Schur, for putting us in contact with each other. I will link in the show notes to the Salon article that Brooke references in our conversation, as well as a link to some information about the comedy tour that she's currently on, as well as some other relevant information about Brooke and the work she's doing. If you like this program and it's been encouraging to you and you'd like to help support it, we would uh, very much appreciate your support. You can donate on a monthly basis to the production and upkeep of this show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. To learn more about Life After God and to keep in touch, you can go to our website at lifeaftergod.org, sign up for the email newsletter. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Our Life After God and on Twitter at twitter.com slash Our Life After God. Thanks again so much for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We'll be back next week with a fresh new episode. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Podcast.